Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It's David here. I don't know how your head is, but my head is getting a little bit melted now from the lockdown. But we carry on. Hasn't been too bad. Family not killing each other. And basically, people, I think, seeing a different side, different relationships different angles with the people in the house. I hope yours has been okay. We're okay. Don't know about John. I'll talk to him in a second. He's usually not okay. That's between the pair of us. I'll tell you all about that in a while. I've actually got an idea of a podcast of the annals of John Davis, 1952 or whenever he was born uh, to now. But anyway, no, he's not that old. He's old, but he's not that old. Anyway, listen, I hope you're having a decent enough time You know, the deal is we're always trying to make economics a little bit more comprehensible, that little bit more relevant. And again, this week, mad stuff, really fascinating. For those of you doing the course, this lecture this week is very germane. It's on a guy called Charles Kindleberger, who was one of the great, great, great explainers of financial cycles, economic cycles, and the nexus between economics, finance, and human behavior, an amazing individual. And given that we're going to be talking about the oil price, which went not just to zero, but below zero this week, the words and analysis of Kindleberger are something, if I were you, I would certainly have a look at. If you're not doing the course, grand. But if you do want to learn a wee bit more about economics, have a look at it on Patreon. So let me get your man up online, Mr. Davis. What's the story, Head? All good? Hey, Mac. How's it going? I'm Grant. How are you? I'm good. I've had my shot of Dettol and uh, a blast of UV <laughs> up my arse, and I'm I'm feeling good. Good, good. Let the meat bleach. The Marie Antoinette <laughs> of the White House. <laughs> He's onto something for sure. He's definitely onto something. <laughs> How's your week been? I will. I, I actually, you know, I've been trying to avoid watching your man. Yeah. Right. Because he annoys me. Oh God, but I couldn't. Really I, I I couldn't. I couldn't stop looking at him and looking at. I mean, and he's trying to sort of inveigle the poor scientist medical yeah, I've officer. N- I have absolutely no sympathy for your one, Dr. Burks. I have no sympathy for her. She was sitting there. There was a brilliant camera shot, if you saw, when he was going out about injecting and all this. And she was sitting there 
cringing. And you can actually read her mind. She was just going, oh, my God, get me out of here. But yet she didn't do anything. Well, you She's know, just been going along with it's it. It's an interesting thing you talk about. I've always been intrigued of the dynamics of bullying in workplaces and the dynamic of the big alpha male and that person who demands attention, not from any other way but through fear, that they rule by fear. So if you know that there's two types of leaders, you know, you know, I didn't think we were going to get into this, but now you've actually mentioned it. Like there's the leader who actually leads through fear and there's a leader who leads through respect. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they're two very different. Absolutely. And they can both be alpha males, right? But there's, and sometimes alpha females, but very rarely, right? But I, I noticed that and I actually saw that. And I, I, a lot of people said, why didn't she say something? I think if you're working with a bully and if the lesson you learn from those around you is the only way in which you can actually survive this is by subjugating your own knowledge and going along with this, you know, narcissistic, kind of malignant narcissist that Trump is. I don't think, I think there's a lot of, particularly women listening to the podcast who go through that every day at work. Sure. That they actually, they know what's going on. They know they should say something, but they understand that the reaction of the bully is going to be so negative that emotionally, financially, but emotionally, they don't have the bandwidth, the capacity. And I think it's something, I mean, I, I remember years ago working, particularly in finance, with kind of psychopaths, sociopaths, you know? Yeah. An actual fact, in finance, the more sociopathic you are, maybe the better you get on. Yeah. I always, I I always could, thought I could that. I well you know, imagine that. Kind of, kind of very, very strange characters, but a lot of bullies... A lot of mm. testosterone, a lot of insecurity, a lot of stupidity. Yeah. And what you usually see in a bully is stupidity and yeah. insecurity. So I take your point about the chief medical officer in the States, but I also think, think that it's a sort of an evolutionary response we have to the environment we're put into. I think the only difference, I get exactly what you're saying, and I know plenty of those kind of people. Mainly bullies. blokes, I'd say. Yeah, mainly, well, I do know of, of well, we both know of one particular female who's, Complete bully. But anyway... Don't refer to my wife like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, anyway, um, but in this particular instance, I think it's different because it's not about self-preservation. It's about the health and well-being of Oh, yeah. No, no, I hear you. And that's, and, and that's, her, that's her bottom line. But again, I just... I think it, it, a little bit of understanding, I would say working with that man is an appalling experience for everybody. Absolutely. And uh, I'm going to give her a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. But anyway, how was the rest of your week? All good? Yeah, well, what can I report? I got up in the morning, I had coffee, I went out to the garden, I went back in, had another coffee, um, you know? Same <laughs> went out to the garden, <laughs> exactly. Well, you know we have a new government, maybe. Well, that is new, but will we notice a difference is the main what is thing. What is really interesting, it's, it's so... The world has gone so crazy that in Ireland we have Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Remember we said, we said they would be like two drunks coming That's after right. the pub, propping each other up. Back Even in January or Well February, before yeah. the Shinners did this, we said yeah. that the likely alliance will be between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. And he said, no, you're mad. And I just thought, no, that's it's, it, has a, it has a bang of that off it, right? Yeah. You know, it commemorates, commemorate the Civil War and all that sort of carry on. Uh, it looks like the Greens are going to prop them up. Yeah. And... Uh, I think, John, now, what is interesting is 
A new government with a chance for new thinking, new ideas, a whole new agenda. What they should be doing now is rather than saying, oh, we're going to form a government and against the background of the biggest depression and the highest yeah. rate of unemployment and a massive fiscal deficit and who knows the way the world is going to go. I think they should say, we're going to form a new government and we're going to make it the best one ever. And we're going to bring in new ideas and we're going to fix this thing. Why would they say that? It's the same people. I know. Leopards don't change their spots. Well, I know, I know. I know. But you see me, I'm the, I'm the optimist. I always yeah, think I know, I know, yeah, change. yeah. But like, you know, on the economy, for example, there's loads of good things you can do. What really interests me at the moment is the idea that every time I hear economists talking in Ireland and all around the world, all they keep saying is, well, how are we going to pay for everything, right? Yeah. I, that's, that's their default position, right? Not realizing that we are facing a depression. So how we pay for this in the future is immaterial, right? And we can pay for it. The problem with, I think that one of the things that have really struck me is that I've always believed that economics is not a cult. So there are okay. no rules. There are no hard and fast rules that are always relevant. That basically economics, there's no creed. You don't stand up like in mass and say, mm. I believe in one God. There is no creed. There's no factions. You don't, you don't have to join a gang if you don't want to. There are factions, yeah. of course, but you don't have to. So economics is much more, John, like an evolution, right? I've, I think evolutionary theory has got much more to offer us in terms of understanding the economy, that the economy is always Schumpeter's idea, yeah. always in a state of flux, always in chaos, always dynamic. And the coronavirus is just one of those things that proves that we're always in a state of flux. That we can't, like, you know when people say, yeah. I'm going to foretell the future, this is going to happen. No, wait, what, the only thing we can do is deal with uncertainty as it emerges and know that uncertainty is the only constant in life. So therefore, all these rules and regulations on economics say, you can't do this, you can't do this, the budget deficit has to be this, that, are all ridiculous because... They all assume an economy that's called at equilibrium. Yeah. So this is the holy grail of all macroeconomics. It's actually bullshit. Yeah. It's a, if you th even think about it for a moment, the idea that the economy, at equilibrium means the economy is at rest. Yeah. The economy is settled. It's kind of dormant. That's equilibrium. It's never at dormant. But it's a perfect analogy for the environment and for ecology. Because that's a, a dynamic system that's constantly changing and it's always seeking equilibrium, but it never actually gets there. Now, very interesting. This is my new obsession, which is evolutionary economics. Right, okay. okay. And I have been evolving, actually, to this place for a while, thinking that I don't understand why economists think that the world is at equilibrium, that there's shifts and there's shocks. No, there's not. There just is stuff. Yeah. And it seems to me that evolution, you know, based on variance at the beginning, so things are different. And then the second is selection, so natural selection. Yeah, yeah. And then once something's naturally selected, it reproduces. That's what we are, right? Yeah. So, so that is a much better way of looking at the economy. And when I look at the coronavirus, and I look at what's happened here, I think, hold on a second, we should park that notion that old rules matter. So for I've always said, like, in a crisis, right, what is radical 
becomes mainstream. And what was mainstream becomes redundant because we're totally in a state of flux all the time. Yeah. And this goes back to, you know, Nassim Taleb's black swan idea that, yes. you know, that yeah, basically yeah, yeah. the interesting thing is the churn, the chaos, the uncertainty. And it's to deal with that and have what he talks about, have strategies, these anti-fragile, don't be fragile. So when I see, for example, small businesses going out of business, what we've got to understand is that the small business sector is the heart of the economy. So unless we save small businesses, we won't have an economy, yeah. right? And again, I look at what the government is doing, and I know they're doing their best, but they don't seem to have any spark of imagination. So, for example, you know, the, the idea that small businesses in Ireland will go out of business because of a lack of money when you can just print the stuff. Yeah. I mean, these sort of basic ideas. So, so why do you think then that because we have new government, there's going to be new thinking? I'm hoping. I'm right, hoping okay, that there's right. new thinking, right? Because if we take, for example, the two things, we spoke about it before, and we're going to get on to different things today, but it's still essential that we're in a crisis that we need to get money into businesses' accounts, Yeah. right? Forget going through the banking system or going through the grants or having applications. We need to get into people's accounts, not because we want to give people free money, but I think we should, but because having the money reduces the stress in the system because what's happening now is that in the system, everybody's saying, look, you had four months credit with me. That was great in normal times, but now I'm worried you won't pay me, so I want my money today. Yeah, so suddenly, yeah. And so the trust has disappeared. So the idea of putting money into people's accounts is basically to reestablish trust. And then everyone chills out and everyone relaxes. And again, I come back to, that's the first thing. The second thing is all the spending we're doing on health and everything in terms of social welfare cannot lead to austerity in two years' time. So the economy cannot take a massive hit in corona, then recover ever so slightly, and then get hit by higher taxes and lower spending to balance the books, right? So we have to figure out how do you achieve these things. So so has this new government, are they on board with this whole idea? Because it hasn't no. happened in the way you've described no, it. No, they, ha- they aren't. And, 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 you know, what I would say to them is, if you don't fix the economy now, your government will collapse. Mm. So get your shit together, right? It's, this yeah. is about survival. This is a, also evolutionary, yeah. right? Is that if this new coalition introduces austerity in a year's time to balance the book, they'll be out of business, yeah. right? The coalition will fracture and there'll be a new election and Sinn Féin will win this time yeah. around. Yeah. So for their own skins, they should be thinking about things. And again, all, all roads lead back to the central bank and the central bank and the Central Bank of Europe, and dispensing with the old rules that were written by, frankly, dead people now, at a time, no, they were in the 90s, at a time when they never, ever imagined a pandemic. So the rules that were written were not rules that said, we could be faced with a pandemic, what do we do? Their big fear at the time was inflation, and all the rules were based on stopping government spending and this morality idea that southern governments spend more than northern governments and the central bank's job. The central bank's job then was to worry about inflation. Yeah. The central bank's job now is to worry about depression. And therefore, we need to figure out how we can do this. And I've, I've said it before, we could issue, this country could issue what's called a perpetual bond. A perpetual bond is tricks in the, in the name. It's into perpetuity. You never pay it. Yeah. So these are being used all the time, right? Yeah. At a very low rate of interest, allied Irish banks are still 70% owned by the government. So we own it. 
So the, yeah. you could issue you it through You'd never AIB. know it though. You'd never know, but we do own it, yeah. right? End of story, right? And then the AIB, so the government issues the IOU. AIB says they will lead it. They sell it in the market, but the market doesn't have to buy it because the central bank has undertaken that it will buy all assets. So the central bank in Europe, the ECB, has said, look, don't worry, issue whatever you want, we'll pay for it. Right. So it can be all done. And if you were to do, let's say, a bond of 50 billion to inject into the economy or 100 billion, mm. which is one third of the economy, which is the amount of money we will need if GDP falls by 20, 25%. These are not figures plucked out of the, of the bag, right? Okay. At an interest rate of 1%, that would mean the interest bill for saving Ireland would be 1 billion a year. That cost is infinitesimally lower than the social and economic cost of not doing this and allowing the economy to collapse. Because that cost could run into tens, hundreds of billions. It could be hundreds of billions because we have a 350 billion economy. If you lose one third, you're talking 100 billion, right? Yeah. And it can be all done tomorrow. But the reason it's not being done is because of this cultish attachment to rules which see the economy as something that achieves equilibrium when it's very clear that a much better description of it is ecology, evolution, and the environment, that we're always in a state of flux. That's my hope, is that the new government says, hold on a second, we've got to think differently, and over the next few weeks, they do it. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So, Mac, the, the other big thing that's been going on that I'll be reading about this week is the whole oil price crash. So we had this spat that went on few weeks ago between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And then the big Don himself came in with the art of the oil deal, as he says himself, and he sorted everything. And everybody was happy. The Saudis are happy. Putin was happy. And he was happy. And then it just went south. So yeah. what? explain what's going on, because it's, well, it's a complicated one. Yeah, it is, John. It is really a complicated one. But I would say, what side are we on here? What side is Ireland, Western Europe on? We don't produce this stuff. Yeah. So frankly, 
if they want to push the oil price down to zero, happy days. Happy days for us. So that's, I would say the first thing is for us, this is not a hassle. However, yeah. it's interesting about the news. The news agenda is so driven by producers and people with vested interests that every newspaper says, oh my God, the oil price is down. This is terrible. Like, this is great. We use this <laughs> yeah. stuff. This is like a tax cut for yeah. us all day, MBS, my friend. So who's your bad for them? But I'll tell you what we'll do. In order to get a good take on this, let's go to the Gulf. Right. Okay. Frank Kane is the senior business columnist with the Arab News. The Arab News is the oldest English language daily in the Gulf. Frank is down there in Dubai. Frank, how are you? I'm good, David. And Ramadan Karim, as they say here. Listen, they say that uh, in Dunleary as well, a lot to almost everyone. They do, yeah. everyone we social yeah. distance and then nod Ramadan Karim to each other on the main street. But Frank, let's cut to the chase. What happened sure. last week? What's going on? Well, last week was the culmination of something that's been... It, it, it depends how far you want to go back. Um, let's just go back a few weeks to the collapse of the Saudi-Russia uh, oil agreement, the, the agreement that Saudi Arabia and Russia have had in place for the last three years to limit the supply of oil. This was a market mechanism which kept the price up because the supply was limited. Uh, at the beginning of March, uh, at an OPEC meeting in Vienna, uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia could no longer agree to maintain this uh, deal, and it fell apart. And Saudi Arabia then proceeded to launch uh, a, a drive for market share and a price war, which had an immediate effect on the oil price, sent it down by 10 15%. This was the beginning of March. At the, at the same time, of course, the bad news about coronavirus and the pandemic was getting even worse, and the huge effect that that had on global oil demand was beginning to become more obvious. So you, you had a situation where more oil was being produced by Saudi Arabia, by Russia, and by the United States, but less and less oil was being consumed by China, India, Europe, and the rest of the world that was in lockdown. So it was a simple mathematical equation. There was too much of the stuff be, be, being produced. Uh, at one stage, 30% of normal demand for uh, crude had been lost from the market. You know, all the planes not flying, the cars not driving, the trains not moving, people not going around. All that had knocked 30% off the normal daily global requirement for oil. So uh, that was three weeks ago. Last week, uh, there was a confluence of, of, of other factors. The contract for May, I don't want to get too technical here, no, but, but anyway, the no, contract but... for May distribution was reaching its renewal point. And if you wanted oil in May, there was simply no one to take it off your hands. So that's when it crashed last Monday, went negative, minus 40. It's a, it's a difficult concept going negative, but as you said, it is effectively paying someone to take the stuff away. The point should be made, David, that the main victim of this collapse was American oil, West Texas Intermediate, which is the US benchmark for crude. This was particularly badly hit because a lot of it is landlocked oil. It's produced in the middle of Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico. The Americans, now this is surprising, they don't really have a, a sophisticated pipeline system to get this stuff to refineries. So it's landlocked. It goes off to a huge reservoir in Cushing, Oklahoma. Uh, and because so much of the stuff had been produced in the previous month, this reservoir in Cushing 
was effectively full. So uh, it couldn't be uh, bought and put in storage, and that's why the price collapsed. And so Last Monday. I want to talk about the politics of it. I want to talk about the geopolitics of it because it mm. is fascinating what is going on long-term, medium-term. But let's just talk about the next couple of weeks because if we're in a situation where there is overflowing supply, as we said, you, the United States doesn't have a way of getting this oil out of the United States or even not even out of the United States to its own consumers other than putting it on trucks and shipping it around the place in effect. What is the short-term outlook for the United States? Because... Trump has made so much of the shale revolution. He's made so much of we're going to become energy independent. He's made so much of the fact we don't need the rest of the world now. What's the yeah. position right now? Well, the U.S. oil industry is is in severe crisis, and uh, some people think it, it it may never recover in in the you know the kind of form that it's in. We're seeing Trump today is talking about taking stakes in the big national in in the big independent oil companies, which would make them rather less than independent, of course. Um, but at these kind of prices, uh, U.S. oil is just not feasible. The, uh, the, the agreement between Saudi Arabia and Russia that I was talking about earlier, OPEC+, Plus, this had the effect of keeping prices high enough for the U.S. oil industry to operate and to be very profitable. Uh, the thing to, to be said in Brent's favour, and I, I am a great admirer of the way that the American oil industry uh, has brought about this uh, revolution in in energy and become, you know, one of the leading suppliers and independent in energy itself. This was a unique combination of American entrepreneurial spirit, if you like, and finance. But the entrepreneurial spirit is still there. You know, the technology is still there, and they worked out incredible ways to, you know, to get at oil that is difficult to get at. But the problem is the financial side of it is disappearing. And, you know, the big investing institutions, the banks, et cetera, who, who financed all this know that they cannot make money at these, these levels. They're calling in loans, firms in the, in the Texas Permian Basin, which is the main center of this. They're going bust. They are taking down oil rigs, you know, just packing up and going home. Well, it's, it's interesting, Frank, because I read that um, uh, at least a quarter of a million jobs are directly related to the oil industry in the United States. Yeah. Uh, many of those places in states that very much supported Donald Trump uh, last year. Right. This has got huge political ramifications. Let's talk about the politics of the end of the U.S. oil industry as we know it, how that feeds into it. And then I want to ask you about Saudi Arabia, because obviously yeah. Arab News is a Saudi paper. You write for a Saudi Arabian publication. I want to understand what is the Saudi game here? I can understand why Russia wants to screw the Yanks. That's, you know, Russia's long-term interests have always been based on the Americans being either embarrassed or weakness or weakened, sorry. But the the Saudis I'm interested in. Let's go to the politics of, in terms of the American politics, what does this do to Donald Trump? It's it's a huge problem for him in the run-up to the election. As you, as you rightly identified, a lot of these states would be natural Trump supporters. You know, Texas, uh, North and South Dakota, Oklahoma. These are places that he, he would expect to win. And uh, he won't do it if there are a huge number of bankruptcies and long unemployment queues. It would be very bad for him in November. And that's why he has focused on oil now since, uh, well, since, since the end of the Saudi-Russia agreement, because he saw you know, what, what, what the danger was. Uh, you, you know, Trump was, was mightily proud of uh, U.S. dominance, of U.S. oil independence, 
so he, he put his personal weight behind getting the Saudis and the Russians back to the negotiating table at OPEC+. Plus. They did the biggest deal in oil history to uh, uh, revive OPEC+, Plus, nearly 10 million barrels a day taken off the market. But, you know, the sheer mathematics of it uh, are against that deal having any effect at all. 30 million barrels aren't wanted and, and they only took away 10. So, you know, this was Trump's grand plan. So he trumpeted that as a great victory. It turned out to be a completely hollow victory. So it leaves him with a problem. And what does he do now? He, he can take stakes in, in the big oil companies. Yes, you know, there are all sorts of problems with that. The US, you know, doesn't like, you know, this kind of state intervention as a, as a political philosophy. What happens to those stakes later on? He can buy some of the oil and put it into the US Strategic Reserve but there isn't enough space in that reserve to make much difference to overall global supply. He can build more reserve, that will take time. So, you know, he's, he's in the middle of a number of not very palatable options here with oil. And let's, let's switch to the region, right? Uh, I, want to, I want to talk about the interests of Saudi Arabia. What is Saudi Arabia's game here? Because I would have thought that Saudi Arabia's main backer in the region is the United States and that the Saudis would not do much to undermine that relationship. But clearly this is having that effect. What's their game here? Yeah, well, um, now, Saudi Arabia was very happy when Trump was elected because they were suspicious of Obama and the Iran deal in particular. You know, the big question in in this region from uh, an Arab perspective is Iran and how far is Iran allowed to go and what kind of threat is it, and how do you how do you neutralise that threat? So when Trump came in, making all the anti-Iranian noises, they were very pleased indeed, and they have supported him in lots of other things. He has returned that support, incidentally. You know, when the uh, the scandal over the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, you know, Trump didn't push the knife in as far as he could. But you know, there is politics and there is business, and Saudis are very proud people. You know, they have a history of never having been colonized by Western powers like the rest of the region. They had a war of liberation, which, you know, is the Lawrence of Arabia War, which, you know, kicked the Turks out of the Arabian Peninsula. And then in, in a reward from Allah, they discovered, you know, the biggest oil supplies on earth underneath their very feet. So, you know, they are immensely proud of all this. And the fact that Aramco, Saudi Aramco is the world's biggest oil company, so while they're happy to cooperate with the other oil producers, they still like to think of themselves as number one, even though in the, in the most recent league table, if you like, they were actually number three. So there is that aspect to it. But, but also, Saudi Arabia needs oil revenue to fund its economy, you know, to a much greater degree than, than either Russia or the United States. Of course, the USA is a very diversified, a completely diversified economy. It does not depend on taxes from oil. Well, Saudi Arabia does, you know, 70% of government revenue comes from, from oil. So they have to ensure that they are the swing producer, that they are the ones who can determine what the global oil price will be and that they can help keep that price as high as possible. So, you know, when this deal with Russia fell apart, they went for market share effectively. They said, okay, uh, the price will fall anyway because of the COVID crisis, but we will get long-term market share we will sign up China and India, you know, and uh, Europe, you know, to long-term deals that in the future, when COVID is over, 
you know, we'll put us in pole position and our oil economy will be healthy again and we will, you know, be able to call the shots again. They felt that their agreement with Russia had artificially, you know, kept the US oil industry healthy and, and profitable for a number of years anyway. And that, uh, you know, that those days were over. So they're quite happy for the United States to be the victim in this particular trade. They get market share, their revenues get back up in a couple of years' time, let's say when the oil prices recovers. Uh, just lastly, before we go, Frank, uh, I'm going to come back to you in Saudi Arabia in a sec, but Russia's angle in all this? Uh, well, Russia was also, look, I mean, I mean, Russia likes uh, high prices too. You know, it, it has rather heavier cost to bear. So, you know, that's why it's stuck in with Saudi Arabia for a long time. But I mean, I get the feeling the Russians played a bad hand here and they were left having to come back to the table to eventually agree an even bigger cut. Of course, you know, Russia, no love lost in the era of sanctions with the, with the USA. You know, that might have been an element too. But I don't think, as you know, some people have said that this was a Russian-Saudi conspiracy to destroy the US oil industry. I don't think it was, although that has been the effect of the whole thing falling apart. Finally, Frank, let's talk football. Very yeah. important stuff, right? Forget all this geopolitics. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, oil yeah, and yeah. Malarkey. Yes, yes, the real stuff, David. The real yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Now we know that MBS is partial to losing money, uh, making some unusual deals. But we know that long term, <laughs> their view is we pay a price. Now we get. Uh, he's obviously backing Newcastle United because Saudi Arabia just took over Newcastle United last week. Well, I haven't done it yet. Uh, there hasn't been a deal signed yet. And, you know, there could be a sting in the tail of this one because, uh, I mean, it's my understanding. I've, I've been following this quite closely. The deal needs the approval of the English Premier League. And there are various machinations going on from interested parties, broadcasters, human rights organisations uh, with the English Premier League to try and get it stopped. I thought you were going to talk uh, about Newcastle's checkered history and human rights. <laughs> it's not black. Like, um, I, I, I no, I've got not. this image of all these Arabs dispensing with their dish dashes and walking around the market up in Newcastle on a Friday night, shirts yeah. off. So yeah, singing, come will. and have a go if you think you're hard yeah, enough, yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I, th- I think we will definitely see the black and white striped dish dash make an appearance at St. Oh, James's Park. A, that's a we, thing we, of beauty. <laughs> we definitely will. If this deal goes through... What chance does Mohammed bin Salman have of attracting top footballers to spend the winter in Newcastle? Well, I guess he's got the same chance that uh, Abu Dhabi had back in 2008 when they bought Manchester City, a very unfashionable club back then in, in a not very fashionable city. Nobody here had heard of Manchester City. You know, they thought that Abu Dhabi had bought Manchester United. You know, they didn't realise there were two clubs. You know, I, I mean, Newcastle, from a footballing point of view, and from a footballing business point of view, has a lot of advantage. You know, it dominates a big football crazy city. It's in the you know the biggest, richest league in Europe. It owns its own stadium. Can fill that every week. But I look, he as you say, as you rightly say, he he's not in this to make money. This is uh, an extension of soft power. He's seen what it's done for uh, Abu Dhabi with Manchester City. Uh, and he wants to do the same, I think. That's... Um, he, he can pay footballers an awful lot of money to come and play in, in a not very nice climate, and footballers will do that. Frank, great to talk to you. We will be back to you again, but listen, thanks very much. Don't be eating too much now in Ramadan. Talk to you later. Well, Frank was very interesting, isn't he? Well, you see, Frank Kane... Apart from the football. Well, the football's very interesting because Frank Kane, like so many people, we forget that 500,000 people 
from Ireland emigrated to England in the 1950s alone. Yeah. And all those people are now doing their thing in England, but they're actually of Irish stock. Now, Frank there, his parents are from Letterfrack yeah. in Connemara. Yeah. Who else's parents are from Letterfrack in Connemara? Harry Kane. Yeah. Frank Kane. Harry Kane. Are they are cousins, though, cousins, aren't they? Long lost cousins. Isn't that amazing? First, second, third. I think second, but it's a whole... Like, you remember our yeah. old mate TK, who yeah. passed away, you know? Um, our TK's family, you know, West of Ireland people. Yeah. You know, what was the name of the ballroom on Kilburn High Road? Cricklewood? The, uh, crack the National. Was, the National. Yeah. The crack was good in Cricklewood. <laughs> but that's their stock. And Frank, obviously, a massive Spurs fan. So we'll have him back. We'll have him back. Yeah, but that's great. Interesting guy. Yeah, yeah. He was really good. But what I found really interesting is that image of that oil lake in Oklahoma. I mean, it, it, what it does actually is it takes us straight back to the Butter Mountains in Europe I and the wine lakes. The wine lakes. It's bizarre. The problem with the wine I was too young to appreciate the notion of the wine lake. <laughs> <laughs> Our kitchen's like a wine lake now. Um, <laughs> but I, again, that makes sense to me because now I understand why the oil price went below zero. Yeah. Right? And the reason is that they the, the reservoir in the United States, in Oklahoma, was spilling, was overflowing. So they had to get people to take the oil away from the reservoir and pay them to transport it somewhere else yeah. in order to preserve it. I also spoke to people in the Gulf during the week, John. They were saying the same thing. They're taking decommissioned oil tankers, right? The people, the Arabs in Dubai, yeah. are buying these old oil tankers from India and China that were about to be decommissioned and they're filling them up with oil as storage in the Gulf because they have too much oil. That's actually really dangerous. You know? It is obviously dangerous, yeah. but but it's a very evocative way to think. The other yeah. thing I took out of that on America was again this notion that he said America doesn't have the infrastructure to ship its oil around the United States. So all it has as always in America, is they're cutting costs everywhere. Yeah. So you end up with an oil industry that is based on a very rudimentary supply chain, which is all the oil goes into this reservoir and then it's dumped into trucks, not trains, trucks, and shipped around, Yeah. right? As opposed to actually the state, America, building pipelines, which Russia does, of yeah. course, which every serious country does, right? They build pipelines to protect it. Whereas, again, you see this sort of piecemeal and it comes back to the way the Americans are doing business. They front finance all these shale companies, which are financed on what are called junk bonds, so very high interest rates. Okay, so they're yeah. very, very high reward, high risk. All the finance goes into what we call the very short end to finance the things. Yeah. But the state isn't actually putting in the commensurate public infrastructure to allow them to weather a crisis like this. And then when a crisis comes like this, they're totally unprepared. And of course, where you see it then is the oil price goes to zero or below zero. And interestingly, in the States, a quarter of a million people are going to lose their job in the shale states alone. Wow. Now, they vote for Donald, but they also vote for this half-assed approach to infrastructure as well. Yeah. So it's like a perfect storm. Well, I mean, one of Donald's big policies was to reinstate and speed up the construction of the XL pipeline from North Dakota and from Canada, from the basically the oil sands. But where was it going? 
Oklahoma. <laughs> to this bloody lake. <laughs> so there you go. So, I mean, it, it is, it is, it's, it's, it's interesting. The really interesting thing is, John, we're oil consumers. So screw them. So you think this would be a boon? This is to, to, but to us coming out specifically of the coronavirus. Exactly. So this all helps us coming out. Yeah. So frankly, don't shed too many crocodile tears for Mr. MBS and his... No, uh, I wouldn't anyway. No, number one, nor Donald, nor Texas. Don't yeah. cry for me, Texas. That's what it's going to be. <laughs> we'll cry for Argentina because there's something really, yeah. I don't know, romantic oh, about Argentina. What's Putin getting out of this? Is he? Putin get- is just loving the whole fact that uh, America has had to go cap in hand to OPEC yeah. in order to execute their strategy. Putin, though, and, and, and is also worried that Russians need oil prices above $25 a barrel. Yeah. So, But they can wear this for a while, obviously. But what they want is they want an oil price at around 30 to $35 a barrel. So they're profitable. The Americans cannot produce at that level. Yeah. So America will be dependent on Russia. Not America, but Western Europe will depend on Russia. Yeah. And Putin's big game has always been to keep the Europeans dependent on the Russians so that the Germans do much better commercial and industrial deals with the Russians. That's their game plan. And this plays into it. So with all the the oil prices collapsing and Corona still ravaging America, it really feels like not only were they unprepared for Corona, but they're kind of unprepared generally. And the oil crisis is kind of showing that up. Yeah, it's, it's really odd. I mean, let's stand back and say one thing. A crisis reveals a lot about a country. Yeah. Okay, how you deal with it. A crisis exposes a lot about a country. So in the United States, what it's exposing is a country with an underlying condition. So let's use those terminology. You know the terminology you've heard about a lot of people, yeah. you know, where they have an underlying condition that makes them very, very weak and makes them unable to fight the pandemic. I think countries are exactly the same as people. America has an underlying chronic condition that has been exposed. Yeah, it's been exposed by this. So you take a country like Ireland, we haven't got everything right, definitely, but we've come together in quite a cohesive way. Most of the European countries, Northern European, come together. Southern European countries didn't. If the crisis exposed these underlying conditions, and I think in the United States what it's exposed is the underlying conditions of profound weakness within the ludicrous situation of being the world's only superpower. Or not only, but second superpower themselves in China. So you think about what are they? They've got no public service. They have states competing with each other on price. They have a bizarre president who sees only his own personal interest. There's no sense of of, of public interest. They have very, very little infrastructure of any case in medicine, right? They have profound inequality. So, for example, you see it, you saw it a little bit here, but not so much. But, you know, the speed with which, you know, MBA players and actresses and things were getting their tests and yet the average person's gotten nothing. You have a Wall Street-dominated worldview which sees everything through the perceptions, not of economics, but of deep finance, of money yeah. making. So of there are whole, the market. And the market whole obsession, even last week, was on what happens to the share price of whatever pharmaceutical company it was that might have had this cure. So yeah. everything's seen through the prism of money, which profoundly amplifies inequality, which trickles down into this idea that 
I have, I'm going to hold, I'm not going to share with you. You look at the deaths, the deaths are overwhelmingly biased in the black community. So I, mean, I see. At least where there is a black population, it seems to be dying at much higher rates, yeah. feeding into obesity, feeding into lack of health, feeding into lack of education, a lack of money, all these sort of things. You look at, you know, for example, the frontline workers everywhere, but in the United States in particular, are the people who are least valued by the society. Mm. And the people who are most valued by society, like the hedge fund managers and all these sort of people yeah. who are fated and vanity fair and all that sort of stuff, mm. they are totally useless. And yet there's no sense that America is going to take this moment and say, we're going to change the way we look at the world. Yeah. So what's interesting, you know, if you take the medical analogy that the underlying condition is exposed by the pandemic, the underlying condition of the United... I mean, the United States has reacted to corona in the sort of reaction you'd expect from a third world country. Yeah. It's an inconvenience. <laughs> the leader is appalling. It's so deeply divided. Like, So if you look at the United States, the United States has had three big crises in the last 20 years, right? 9-11. Yeah. The financial crisis and this one. And let's look at the three of them, right? 9-11 was interesting because America came together then for New York. Mm -hmm. You had a huge national effort and a real sense of America coming together. Maybe because 9-11 happens, of course, in the year 2001. There still is the echo of the Cold War, of the common enemy. Yeah. And the of first America. Gulf War. And no. the first, and America coming together. And it's a great nation and America is a dream and that dream is all about mm. we're all in this together. Right now, if you had a 9-11, the vast majority of the Republican states would be saying, we're not going to come to their aid. They're only immigrants and cosmopolitans <laughs> and liberals, right? That wasn't the case even when Bush Jr. was, yeah. Dubia was in power. Well, that's very true. I mean, it was that it's so polarized now, so polarized. which which is an incredible underlying problem, as you say. It's a you massive know. problem. But it's it's interesting. Just on a, a side, there, I was reading a lot of stuff during the week there about how this argument is now building up about red states and blue states, and this, as you're talking about, governors competing and all the rest. But it's mostly blue states that are propping up red states. That's interesting. It's real but, kind of bitter, bitter infighting. But come back to this idea of the failed state mm. of the United States, right? Not a failed state, but a state where its incongruities have been exposed yeah. by the pandemic. So 2001, the reaction is actually quite one of, let's pull together. Yeah. 2008 financial crisis, the reaction is, let's bail out the rich guys. And the long-term and medium-term implication of that is the recovery jaundices and prejudices the wealthy over the poor. And of course, you see the poor feeling alienated, feeling disenfranchised and voting for Trump. And then Trump has done everything he can to destroy the coherence of the United States. Yeah. So, in the, so now you've got the third crisis, which is the pandemic. At every stage, the society which should be coming together. And then forget, America is a great society. This is the, these are the people who defeated Nazism, who kept the Soviet Union at bay. Sure. They were liberal, they were tolerant, all that sort of thing. It is a great society, but at every, in the last 20 years, when faced with a challenge, at every stage, the response has been less and less impressive. And this 
strikes me when we get to a challenge like the 2020 coronavirus challenge, that the American, the fabric of American society is so atrophied and so scattered and so without purpose that what you're seeing is the reaction of what looked to me like a third world country, like a, a place, you know, that has lost its way. Now, the big issue, John, is whether or not the United States reimagines itself, regalvanizes itself, re-energizes itself and says... But it needs a new leader for that. It needs, it needs, you know what it needs? Not just a new leader, it needs a whole new conversation. Yeah. A whole new set of ethics, a whole new set of responsibilities to its own people and to the world. And unfortunately, it's hard to see in a world of Fox News and divided social media and... It's hard to see the message of unity elbowing itself I think out. that's the... You know, the, the, it's, it is yeah, worrying. I, I think that's the, the greatest problem. Unity is gone. The polarization is so ingrained. That poison is so deep in the American psyche now. Like, you know, even if Sleepy Joe did get in uh, November, Joe. I don't think he's dynamic enough and imaginative enough to actually make such a massive difference to unify the country. And also, I firmly believe if Trump is kicked out, he will buy AON News or buy into Fox or whatever and just keep that message pumping Oh, yeah. No, 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 that's true. But I I wonder, is there another way of looking at it as well? Because, I mean, we naturally look at everything from a kind of a European perspective. But, you know, this is what America has bought into. This is the American dream where, you know, you have this social mobility, the opportunity, allegedly, but, you know, the flip side of that is that you don't have a safety net. You can't have it both ways. Spoken like a true cheese-eating surrender monkey, (laughs) as they refer to the French in the second (laughs) Gulf War. (laughs) You cheese-eating surrender monkey. Uh, Freedom fries. Freedom fries. No, look, you're absolutely right. Maybe a way to put it is the following. Europeans think... Inequality is appalling. And Americans think inequality is a fair reflection of your effort, your chutzpah, your get up and go, your risk taking. That basically, it's this idea, you know, the Americans talk about this shining city on the hill, American exceptionalism, all that sort of stuff. That basically there is a play, you know, Ronald Reagan put it brilliantly when he said his election campaign was morning in America and the sun coming up. That basically it's all, you know, doesn't matter if you live in a trailer park, you too still, you can be yeah. president, right? Yeah. And Reagan's story was very much that. He was a continuity announcer, Irish-American, no background at all, ends up not a particularly great actor, like a decent enough actor, yeah. um, working his way up, all that sort of stuff. It's like so, Arnie, you know? Yeah. Did you see Arnie in his pool the other day? No. Arnie's, Arnie's having these stay in, stay safe tweets. Yeah. But he doesn't kind of realise that, you know... He's in his pool with a big fat cigar yeah, yeah. and cocktails. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I would be the same, actually, if but, I was him. <laughs> but to come back, you're probably right that we should imbibe more of the American ideas that part of the risk in this great adventure is that the state doesn't look after you, that you are on your own. The only problem with the social mobility in America is that America has the smallest social mobility in the world. So, for example, the country with the highest level of social mobility is Denmark. 
if you were born okay. very poor in Denmark, you have a better chance in Denmark of actually ending up reasonably well off than any other country in the world. Yeah. The United States is the opposite. If you're born in Compton and you're not a member of NWA, right? Yeah. Your chances of getting up are almost zero. Yeah, for sure. But the myth of America, the striving catechism of America is the catechism of self-improvement. And therefore, what we need to understand is that's what they believe, which is why you have these crazy situations of large people in SUVs shouting at medics and healthcare workers. Yeah, yeah. Even though we all know that if those people in SUVs get sick, the medics are the people yeah. going to look after them. But I think maybe you're right. Maybe we should take the... The irony, the irony, I think, of the whole thing is that they bang on more about God and it's written on their bills in God we trust. But they're the least Christian government and nation. John, do you remember when we were kids? Remember having to go to Mass? I do. Do you remember we'd have to go to mass? Yeah, I was, an altar boy. As, were, I was an altar as, boy. I was only an altar boy to get in the football team. Yeah, but you were a proper I was there to get the wine. <laughs> yeah, I used to always get the fucking ring and the bell wrong. I'd be so nervous. And there was a signal, there, like, there was a tell from the priest. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, yeah, you lift up the chalice. You lift up the chalice, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I'd, I'd always go early. ding a ling a ling and all the... It wouldn't be the only thing you'd go early on. <laughs> but I remember when I'd go early and then I suddenly, you'd get the stairs from the Alwans. Oh, yeah. Right, up oh, in yeah. the front, right? The blue rinse. Right, the blue rinse. The most Christian, allegedly, of people. The most sanctimonious. The most al fresco, arse-kissing punters, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. They were the very women that were so obnoxious and so unchristian. So yeah, that is so true, yeah. John and I were petrified altar boys in the St. Patrick's <laughs> Church in Monkstown in about, oh God, 50 70s. years? Yeah, yeah. 70s, ages ago. <laughs> Uh, needless to say, we uh, abandoned that particular affectation and haven't been back to mass since. There you go. <laughs> anyway, um, but but again, I come back. Pandemics, you know, history, we like a bit of history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pandemics have an extraordinary ability to re-energise societies. We saw that in America after the flu virus. Well, that's true. And we saw that when we went back to the Black Death. Yeah. These moments change the world and this will not be any different. Mm. So so maybe on the other hand, then you're saying that if this pandemic gets really bad in America, that actually that might be the Kickstarter. Yeah, I think, again, the history, there's a great history of inequality, John. Yeah. Right. Human inequality, a book I'm reading that goes back to the Stone Age. You'll love all this. Jeez. Okay. It's by a guy called Siebert, Walter right. Siebert, who's in... I believe an Austrian academic, but based in the United States. And it's about inequality back to the Stone Age, which is really good stuff, right? Okay. And uh, I know, I know you think, I'm, this is what I'm I doing. Love it. I, just, I love it, I love it. This is what I'm doing the lockdown. Um, but one of the things that he shows that is that there are only four major events that suppress inequality in the world. One's are war. Yeah. The other one is revolution. The other one is total system fails, like the collapse of an economy. Right. of a society. The last one is pandemics. Okay. They do change people's perceptions yeah. and they do change the world. So I'd be one who has, again, a reasonably optimistic view that the United States can change because, again, we need it to change and the United States is a huge, huge uh, and very, very significant friend of ours and we need it to remain not just a friend but a very powerful one yeah. and a reasonably righteous one. 
But it's interesting, I was, I was thinking about pandemics and the last major pandemic, John, we're coming up to the 300th anniversary of something. Oh yeah, okay? go on. In May 1720, okay? <laughs> take I was, me back, take I, me back. Take you back. I was reading, <laughs> I was actually reading, not over the last few weeks, but a while back, I had to give a speech. It was the most nerve-wracking speech I gave was with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh, right. Okay. In St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. Yes, I actually remember you doing that. On the issue of Jonathan Swift and Swift's place in the Irish canon. Now, of course, I know nothing in terms of being able to talk about his literature, Mm. but I decided to look into his economics and his finance and what was going on. And Swift was a great man for a bet. He loved a little... He loved a on the flutter. horses. <laughs> Not on the horses, but on everything else, right? And we've spoken about before the South Sea bubble. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So Swift and Isaac Newton lost their shirt on the South Sea bubble, which also peaked in summer of 1720. And it was okay. speculative. Remember we talked about Sprukers last week? Sprukers, It was yeah, a yeah. speculative bonanza based on a notion that the share price of land in Mrs. Hippie, which was the French parcel of the United States, was going to be worth so much that you'd speculate on it. Okay. It was like a a text lock. It was like your man Tesla, whatever his name is. Yeah. All that sort of stuff in the old days. And, of course, you forget that there was so much new stuff coming from the Caribbean, uh, based largely on slavery as well. They omitted to tell you that. Yeah. Which is the whole thing of cotton and sugar and all those good stuff. Anyway, but... That was happening in the English-speaking world. Right. But at the same time, the French-speaking world was obsessed, again, with another Mississippi-based scam. So right. the Brits were the South Sea bubble. Yeah. And the French had a thing called the Mississippi bubble, right? Same type of idea. But the guy who brought this in was a guy called John Law. And John Law was a Scottish murderer who became the Prime Minister of France. Now, isn't that quite an what? achievement? Well, who yeah. did he murder? He murdered a fella in a duel. Right. Right. He was a Scottish geezer, murdered the fellow in the duel. He was a hitman, John Law. He was an economist, very interesting geezer, right? Economic hitman. He was a a hitman. (laughs) And in 1798, he murdered a fella. Right. Interesting story. Is it called murder if you if it's in a duel? Well, if you blow a fella's head off with a gun, you're... Well, he killed him, but he, he killed a fella. <laughs> right. He killed a fella, but he scarpered because he was going to go to prison. Right. Right. Okay. And he went to France. He was a Scottish fella, murdered a fella in England. Going to go to, went to France. Reinvents himself in France. France at the time is the biggest country, in the richest country in Europe, biggest country, but had always these periodic monetary problems because it was always running out of gold. Why? Because Louis XIV and all those lads were yeah, building yeah. all the palaces, right? Yeah, yeah. And they also had a weakness for scrapping, right? They were always having scraps yeah. and, and war costs. So they kept running out of gold. So France's ambitions were always being thwarted by the fact they didn't have enough gold. Law comes in, he's a very clever fella, and he figures out a way of creating, he creates an entire paper money economy that had never existed before. This is the first paper money. The very first paper money economy was in France between 1700 and 1715. And it was Law's big idea that he would take gold out of the economy and introduce IOUs, like paper. Like, right, like, okay. That the Bank of England had been opened in 1760 or 17... No, sorry, 1670. The Bank of England had been doing the same thing. So the Brits had figured out how to inject paper money. Right. So the French decided to do this. So Law was the man. He became prime minister. 
Okay, he's amazing. A fellow who murdered a lad, right? And <laughs> the reason he murdered a fella is that it's thought that he was a hitman, that the guy that he murdered was the gay lover of a man who went on to be the Prime Minister of England, who was directly related to both Churchill yeah. and Diana Spencer. Wow. Lord Spencer. Isn't this great stuff, right? Wow. Okay, this is all going okay, on in the background, right? This is my So Jonathan <laughs> Swift is reading all this stuff, right? Okay. And what happens is in 1720, this massive financial speculation in Mississippi ends up going bust. Right? Yeah. It was only, it was a Ponzi scheme. Right, okay. But why did it go bust in May of 1720? Yeah. Because the Great Plague arrived in Marseille in May of 1720. The last outbreak of the bubonic plague, the one that crippled the people in 13... Yeah, 44. 44, 47, around then. The last ever outbreak in Europe happened in Marseille in 1720. So what happens is ships are coming from Constantinople, Istanbul, all that thing. They come with that little flea. It's a bacteria that lives in a flea, right? The bubonic plague. There's a massive outbreak in Marseille. Marseille had these quarantine systems in place, but it overwhelmed them, right? Right. What does, and this comes back to our talk about finance and Trump and the implication of plagues on finance and economics. What happened was people who were quite happy in France to have this paper money, okay, these IOUs, right, suddenly began to panic in the face of the plague. And what do they want? They said, I want gold. I don't want this Mickey Mouse currency. I want real stuff because I'm panicking. So but, they, so the people, I mean, we're not talking the average Joe, we're talking yeah. the lords and yeah, 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 the fellas in the sure. silk pants with the big bollocks hanging out of them, right? Those <laughs> lads, right? They the all, powdered wig. The powdered wig, right? So they all said, look, because it's in a panic, because it's a pandemic, because this could be the great plague coming out of Marseille again, we really want something that we really believe in. This is no time for pussyfooting around with these paper monies and yeah. these IOUs, we want gold. So suddenly everyone wants gold. There's a rush for gold. They sell all the paper money. The price of the paper money falls. It's exactly like what happens sure, yeah, in yeah. the American stock market. Exactly the same thing. And Law, our murdering prime minister friend, ends up losing his job, losing everything. The French economy collapses in 1720. And of course, the problem for our friend Jonathan Swift yeah. was that all the stock markets at the time were all related. There were three big ones. It was Paris, Amsterdam, and London. They were the three right. big ones. Okay. And Dublin was Mickey Mouse. They were always... Sure. Right. And again, Swift lost a few shekels, which is why Swift ended up writing thereafter about the need for the Irish economy to have its own currency. He was obsessed by having our own currency. Oh, okay. And the need for us to have a manufacturing base so we wouldn't be ended up always being interrupted by speculation. So we need real industry and not finance industry. Law ends up losing his shirt in France. He's not prime minister. The gay lover, Spencer, uh, was never, ever exposed because Law killed the fella who was his lover. Right, okay. That's amazing. So the anniversary... There's a movie in that. uh, There is a movie in that. (laughs) The anniversary is next week, 300 years ago. Right, that is fantastic. And that shows you what pandemics can do. Yeah. They can destroy politicians, they can destroy economies, they can destroy currencies, they can destroy speculation. And the more leverage you have, the more fragile you are.
Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi er skide trætte af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt. Det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.